Dude, we are going to energize the country. Stop Brexit. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Seamus and Notch is a great idea. And welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm joined by my co-host Conrad. And in this episode, we are joined by the uh, prospective parliamentary candidate for Uxbridge and South Ryslick for the Liberal Democrats, Dr. Elizabeth Evenden Kenyon. Hello, Hello and welcome to the podcast. Um, uh, to begin with, I'd like to ask, uh, what do you think the situation um, regarding Brexit, whether people are pro-Brexit or pro-Remain, is currently in uh, Uxbridge and South Ryslip? Well, Uxbridge and South Ryslip, as a lot of people now know, um, voted, I think it was 56% for leave. And there has been a lot of canvassing by different parties and a lot of journalists taking surprisingly keen interest in the area in the Mm -hmm. last few weeks and months. And the mood is most definitely that it's moved to remain mm-hmm. and a lot of frustration at the the toing and froing and the lack of clarity and the lack of any success in getting a deal that anybody was happy with. Mm-hmm. A, a massive amount of frustration over that and just generally wanting the thing to go away. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, your your opponent for the Conservatives is one Boris Johnson, our Prime Minister. Um, what do you think of the chances? He's got like a majority of about 5,000 over Labour at yeah. the moment. Um, but in terms of, uh, I can't remember, I don't know what the Lib Dem vote is off the top of my head before, but what do you think the chances of the Lib Dems sort of doing well at the next election, which could be very soon? Well, the 2017 election, they say a week in politics is a long time. Uh, 2017 to 2019 is an entirely different landscape. Mm. Um, I'm out campaigning with people who were out campaigning in 2017 because I only became PPC this uh, April. Mm-hmm. They they are talking about how different the mood is and how welcoming people are to us and that they get that we have a very simple message and the euros are always a difficult one to gauge Mm. but labor lost a lot of votes in in the euros and we gained thousands so whenever anybody on social media likes to have a snark at me of oh yeah but look how you did in 2017 um that it those just do not represent the the figures and the feedback we are getting now so we are by no means what um, another candidate might refer to as irrelevant. We are definitely known to be listening and known to have clear local and national messages. Uh, how difficult do you think it is uh, competing against uh, a candidate in the form of uh, Boris Johnson, who's obviously Prime Minister, such a, a well-known candidate, to be able to um, argue more on the issues rather than uh, perhaps the status and the popularity of uh, or lack of popularity dependent where you are of your opponent? Well, when I talk to people in the constituency, there's inevitably you get a certain number of people who are, oh, but he's so funny. I like him. He's charming. Mm. And then I probably ever so slightly go into lecturer mode because for 20 years I've spent my time 
looking at how propaganda works in text and visual mm. image, looking at it historically and then moving through to the present day. And one of the things that I am a specialist at is unpacking propaganda and how propaganda is utilised to make you want something or to make you like something. So when I start unpacking it and saying, what do you think about this and what do you think about that? I can I can see the thought bubbles go up in a lot of people. And, you know, I do this for a job. I'm the director of a charity that tackles hate speech online, racism, homophobia, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism. I do this for a day job, unpacking what he gets away with just because he, he goes and, and it, he's mm. a charming little joker. No, he's not. He's using classic techniques. I mean, so I mean, obviously, there's Brexit's obviously the big issue at the moment. Um, Caroline Lucas recently put a proposal of like an all-female cabinet sort of being put together to sort of stop Brexit and stop No Deal Brexit at least. Um, what do you think of this idea? Do you think it could work, or do you think it's a bit pie in the sky? It was not one, and to be fair, she has, as of this morning's news, she has apologised for it and said she was wrong. So. I did look at it with a raised eyebrow and I'm uncomfortable when we switch from a bunch of middle-aged white men to a bunch of middle-aged white women. That, <laughs> that's not necessarily coming up with, with an answer, but you know, Caroline has retracted that and onwards we go. Uh, now, you mentioned um, uh, your work for uh, a charity that tackles uh, hate speech and racism online. And of course, um, your opponent in Oxbridge and South Ryslip, well, both your opponents in Oxbridge uh, and South Ryslip have uh, made comments that have um, uh, perhaps offended people and have been uh, interpreted as being uh, racist, uh, both Boris Johnson and uh, Ali Minali for Labour. How um, difficult do you think it is tackling um, issues uh, like the comments that have made, been made by these two candidates on uh, the doorstep, because obviously there will be some people that will perhaps share the views that they have expressed. I mean, how, how do you sort of like uh, tackle that? It's on a one to one basis, um, very much so. I mean, I, there are various techniques for unpacking and flipping how someone thinks. You can't, it mm. doesn't work on everybody. I'm not saying it is. But the key thing is to open with listening and actually understand where that comes from. The classic technique that is used by Johnson is what we would call othering. Mm. So you've got a busy day. You're behind on your rent or your mortgage. You've got to think about your dinner in the evening. You're maybe had a round with the other half kids playing up. You don't have a huge amount of time to think about the great worries and the wider ideas. But if mm. somebody presents you with an other it's me against them. Mm. You're either with me or you're against me. And you can pile all your problems onto that other. Then you've then you've pigeonholed it. And right. OK, it's immigrants fault. I'll move on with my day. And it's a very, very classic plays into human instinct of needing an enemy, needing someone that is to blame for things. That's not me. Eat or be eaten. It plays into all of that. And Johnson is a master of that. And so. One of the things I do, because I do this for a job, is I listen to where it comes from and I listen to where they get their news, where they get their information. And one of the interesting things you can do is, well, you know, where do you get that news? We all know that majority of people are going online. 
And you can often open a conversation of, so do you only ever read the things that reinforce your opinion or do you read things that challenge you? And then you can ask why they find them challenging. And it gets you into a point of when you're listening, that person realizes that you, you're taking them seriously, their, mm. their opinion is valid and you're pursuing a line of inquiry. You're not going, yeah, but no, but uh, you're not turning mm. into Vicky Pollard because Vicky yeah. Pollard never works. <laughs> so... So there, there is, you know, there's always an opportunity. And I, I spent so much of my career being faced with severe anger and hate and talking it down. And Mr. Johnson will just, you know, try and bluster around. Well, they do look like letterboxes. Um, he, he is of the character of the classic bully who, when challenged, just ratches it up. Two classic things for bullies, and it happens in politics. If you mm. challenge them, they either get worse or they realise it's not working and they change tactic or they leave you alone. So um, he's definitely in that first category. So you, you speak about sort of people becoming in sort of these sort of bubbles and sort of only seeing things that reinforce their view. Do you think this is um, a problem on sort of both sides of politics, on Remain as well, and that it's sort of is sort of something that's contributing across the spectrum to more division in our country? There's, there's absolutely no doubt, and there's enough research out there. You know, I'm not just talking my own. There, is plenty, there are plenty of people working on this that by reinforcement through social media and only um, working with particular platforms, it reinforces that polarisation. And this mm. has gone on for long enough that get, people get entrenched, they get frustrated, they get angry, and that's often when they kick. And, oh, well, there's no use talking to a Ramona. Oh, Brexit is this. It, it, you fall into that classic, oh, well, I'm not going to get through to them, so they're the enemy, we other them, they're thick, they're stupid. And all the stereotypes start pouring out. You know, I have, I have times on social media where someone's had a, a right go at me, and I'll be... So what is it in your day that made you think that that was OK to see speak to me? And mm. you'd be amazed how many times I can actually get into a conversation and we will have a calm discussion and we can agree to disagree. But because I've listened to their point and I, I've asked questions that aren't pejorative, I'm not going, yeah, but. Mm. We can find a middle ground. Some people just get really, really frustrated that I I don't kick back, but I'm not a kickback. I'm a when somebody's nasty to me or has a snark at me. My first thought is, where's that coming from? What is making that person feel that way? What is reinforcing it? It's not oh, you're being mean to me and you're obviously one of them. Because I try my best as a human being not to do othering. That's what I teach others. Mm. <laughs> Um, there's been uh, quite a lot of speculation about um, the possibility of a uh, Remain alliance between the Liberal Democrats and other parties at yes. the next general election. How effective do you think such an alliance would be? And do you not think that it might sort of uh, put potential voters off if they only uh, are able to vote for a candidate, say, for example, the Liberal Democrats, but they're traditionally uh, a Green voter? Would that not perhaps put them off? Not the evidence we've seen today, and certainly not Brecken and Radner. Mm. Um, we get um, a lot of 
a lot of data now saying, you know, we are getting close to the wire. Halloween is coming and it's horrifying for more than the usual reasons. We are at a point where this is polarised. And if we are going to attempt to have any mm. level of national unity, then our politicians and particularly Remainers have got to find a way to work together. Mm. It frustrates me when I see Remainers turning on Remainers or Remainers blocking out other Remainers. I keep insisting we need to keep channels open. You can go all the way back to Alexander and know that divide and conquer is the best tactic in the world. And mm. if you want to beat your opponent, let them beat each other up. I mean, we've got Brexit as of one of the bit, probably the biggest issue um, for the next general election, whenever it will be. But we, another issue that sort of is seems to be one that Boris is sort of making his own is the issue of crime, um, and he's recently announced sort of a return to stop and search, um, increased stop and search powers. Um, what do you think of this, given that polling shows that large majority of people, including 61% of Lib Dem voters, support this? I'm, I'm slightly convinced that in a parallel universe, he has um, swathes of unicorns digging up coins for all this magical money he's coming up with. <laughs> Where do we even start? It's This is the man who, as Lord Mayor, insisted that we could close more than 60 police stations across the capital. And then in 2017, gets very frustrated and bemused why the one in his own constituency was closed when he closed it as mayor. So it's one thing to take away with one hand and then give with the other. It's a classic clickbait of, oh, well, I, I will give you all these amazing things if you give me that one little tiny vote back. And you look where the money is going. You look where it's going on crime. You look where it's going on at the NHS. It is genuinely not rocket science to see these are all going to areas where the Brexit party have have a sway. Did any money come to Hillingdon? Nope. It's classic propaganda tactics and persuasion tactics. Um, there's a, uh, a legal uh, challenge trying to stop uh, Boris Johnson from proroguing Parliament to force through um, an odio Brexit, uh, which is about to go through the Scottish courts. How successful do you think that this legal challenge would be? And do you think that it, uh, perhaps there's a worry that it might make people who voted for Brexit feel disillusioned that their vote wasn't carried out? It would be interesting to get the data, and I've not seen any yet, on how many people actually understand what proroguing Parliament does mm. and how the last time it happened, it didn't end too well. <laughs> if people went to their 17th century history classes at all at school. So it's my own feeling is, again, it's a great technique of I am the man of the people and I will mm. give you what you want, come what may, as opposed to the, these are the acts of a dictator. So mm. I think any legal challenge has teeth, but with any legal challenge, will it go through in time? And I, I think that is a genuinely big issue. The fact that, um, you know, we are in in August, Parliament mm. isn't sitting. We were all told that we need to use our time wisely. Uh, it's time for due process. So, yes, I think it, I genuinely do think it has it has teeth. But whether it happens in time and with the vagaries of Mr. Johnson's mood swings, who knows? <laughs> So do you, is, there, is there a worry on your part then that 
it might be, they might be too late to actually do anything to stop no deal Brexit because obviously we're in um, recess now um, and then the Parliament comes out in September. But even if there's a vote of no confidence then, it could it could reasonably be scheduled after election will be scheduled after when we would leave. Well, there's one very simple way to make it all go away, and that is to revoke. It's not a difficult thing to do, but it's made out as if, oh, we can't possibly do that. The other thing with playing for time and enjoying recess is if we do have, if we do want a people's vote and we finally persuade that to be a thing, again, it's how much time is there to do due process. So I, I'm not a worrier. I'm a planner. So my methodology and I see a lot of it in, you know, certain sections of different parties is you plan for all possible outcomes and worrying never solves anything has always been my mantra. So it's looking at just how many variables of tantrum can Mr. Johnson have and planning Mm. accordingly. So, yes, we could spin this bottle all day and say, which way is it going to go? We are with a temperamental prime minister who has got the the lid off the toy box open. So who knows what's going to happen? But I do think that there are only so many ways you can prepare. And the best case scenario, even I would maintain for those who want to leave, if they do actually understand how bad no deal actually is, there is a case for revoke and do this and re-trigger when time is possible. That revoke is not simply, oh, Ramona's wanting to win. It's the fact that our government has tied this country in knots, had uh, media that have not explained what the process is for due diligence and legal requirements under Article 50. And everybody's been spit, span uh, sound bites. So the quickest way to take time and level this all out and not make rash decisions that are going to crucify so many strands of life in the UK is to hit that revoke button. But when you say um, that revoke would be good for leavers as well because it would give us more time, isn't there? Isn't the argument that if there was a revoke, it would have to be permanent? It couldn't just be something that was just a pipe for time and then we'd we could trigger it again. It would have to be a permanent thing. There, there are all sorts of arguments in all sorts of ways. We have the argument that I'm going to get another deal. No, look at the legal framework of the Lisbon Treaty. It was a one deal affair. So saying that the EU are, you know, the European Commission are entrenched and not giving leeway, they're following due process. It's sound bites coming from the UK government are making it as if, oh, we have more choices. If we get this far as a discussion on Article 50, I would still hope that people would actually understand the due process of the Lisbon Treaty and know that you can revoke and raise an issue again. I think we'd all want to go and have a nice, quiet cup of tea and and go, right, can we all just get on with saving the NHS and having sensible lives and back to sharing kitty pictures on the Internet? There are there are all sorts of cases for that. But Everything in this country is coming second to this obsession with, oh, no deal will be fine and we're out. We didn't have money for the NHS. We didn't have money for solving education to help prevent crime. Yet we can spend billions on propaganda to tell people that it's 
deal or no deal. There is no second deal. No deal will be disaster. The sensible thing at this stage on any side of the argument is to revoke. And I know there'll be a lot of leavers who will disagree with me fervently on that. <laughs> you got one in this call. But, yeah. <laughs> but as someone who knows the legal frame of this this inside and out and knows the financial ramifications of all the options that we could have gone for and you know what do we do the second we're looking at different tariffs on any argument as mm. as much as the furore would come in my direction the safest thing for this country is a revoke in my mind at this stage do you think that if um, we do eventually leave, regardless of whether through no deal or through some form of deal, do you think that the Liberal Democrats would begin to campaign for Britain to rejoin the European Union? Absolutely. Do you think that um, if there was sort of like a, a campaign to rejoin, that that would then ties to things like Schengen and the euro, and that might not be perhaps as popular as our current relationship with the EU. There is nothing as good as the deal we've got, and that is unpopular with a lot of people who've mm. been spoon-fed for years across our media on what's wrong about the EU. And the Commission have held their hand up and said, you know, we have we could have done more, the UK government could have done more to explain what benefits we get out of Europe. You know, Wales is having this very discussion now. That mm. should have been a discussion before Article 50 was triggered or even before it was in a Tory manifesto. But to speculate on where we would go next is a speculation on top of a speculation on mm. what <laughs> is going to happen next. And in my mind, to try and comment on that is trying to herd cats blindfold. So I think we need to wait and see. Well, um, across the pond, you've also got Donald Trump and talking about trade with the UK. And then John Bolton has just today said that um, UK would be first in line for a US trade deal. How likely do you think that would be were we to leave the EU with no deal? Well, they're already buddies, so I can't see any reason why Trump and Johnson wouldn't start thrashing things out quickly. Um, to whose benefit? Whenever there's a deal, who gets the greater benefit? That would be my question. And it's one thing to say we'll do major deals like car industry first and sort the rest out later. Does the rest of that include the medicines that keep us alive? What constitutes later? There are a lot of unanswered questions when a quick answer is given. So I have no doubt that Mr. Johnson will buddy up across the pond. But where is the substance in it would be my my question. Um, uh, of course, you're uh, an expert or at least you um, have a lot of experience with dealing with um, propaganda. Um, how... How influential do you think that the printed press is uh, compared now with, say, during the Reformation and with later? OK, so we're, we're jumping a bit around a bit in time frame here. <laughs> uh, let's just the arrival of the printing press in Europe is 
late 15th century. The Reformation, when we see the, the in the UK, in, in England in particular, that we have this move towards having um, text, biblical texts and religious texts in English, and the vernacular starts to get its own status. There is a there is a period in Elizabeth's reign where the first real propaganda machine starts to play. You have under the Protestant rule, you have increased literacy rates mm. and there is an increase in getting um, both genders and more people reading to um, be able to read what the government puts out in print. So my PhD was on the Findoctrine. And the techniques that they used for the press, with more people being able to read, and I've done quite a bit um, with the BBC on this, on the the printing press in many ways was the internet of its age. Mm. And you've got people who are getting increased access to information. Oh, I read it in a pamphlet, so it must be true. So there are... You know, the politics may be different and and the you know structures of our communities may be different, but human nature remains the same. You can fl- fast forward into, you know, the rise of the tabloids, the rise of the broadsheets and them being ubiquitous in households. Mm. And pretty much from 72 onwards, you start seeing a drip, drip feed to Generation X and Generation of baby boomers and their parents, you can see this whole mix of different age groups being given information about how Europe works. Mm. And it's a drip feed and it's a drip and it's a drip and it's a drip and it carries on. And you can map, you can absolutely map this through UK newspapers, how common tropes are used in headlines, they're repeated and images start to form in a national consciousness. Mm. And that's in the time where we are beginning to become a multicultural society. So our, our printed press are making a big deal of how, you know, post-war Britain, lit spirit and all that nonsense. Um, things are changing and things are changing quickly. And more, more and more people are buying their magazines and their newspapers. We fast forward to the Internet and we start going into um, big data and mass audiences. Everybody starts initially, you know, the amount of students we had who early days. Oh, it's on, it was on Wikipedia. So I thought it was good enough and it must be true. There's an error in the Wikipedia entry about me. And I should know that the, at least the last time I looked. We start to get levels of discernment. But what we see with an Internet age that's moved on from having a print copy into different platform copies is you can see a demonstrated um, divergence between age groups. So those who traditionally would have bought a print daily mail are far more likely to go and look at it online and look at Facebook, Mm. whereas the generation who are growing up of, oh, well, my parents might have read that. I want something that's a bit more my age range. They're going to look at stuff on Twitter. They're going to go to different media. So you get this fractionalization now that, whereas previously everything was printed in London mm. and that was the only way it got into people's hands, give or take a university press. <laughs> now, where is it coming from? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not even going to go down the whole Russian group, but 
It's been a systematic drip feed and the more people you can reach and the more influence you can reach, you can do that for positive or you can mm. do that for negative. As I say, human nature doesn't change. We want to look for people who agree with us. And when we've been drip fed something for long enough that it's second nature, we, we naturally want to reinforce that. Um, there have been uh, a lot of people who've been uh, writing pieces in The Telegraph and other newspapers that have made comparisons uh, between Brexit and the Second World War, Brexit and the Reformation, Brexit and uh, whatever, uh, whatever. How reliable or accurate do you think those comparisons are? And do you think that it perhaps doesn't properly contextualise what's happening now to compare it to an event that happened in a completely different context? Utter, utter nostalgic nonsense. <laughs> Bottom line. In Duncan Smith, the Reformation was the beginning of modern Britain and Brexit is similar. For one, he's Catholic and I would be interested to see how he thought the Reformation made things better for Catholics mm -hmm. in England. That is a very interesting point. The the associations are just nonsense. And we're going back into you look at the classic techniques of propaganda. You look for heroes and villains. You pay back into a major point in state history where you align state action with religious action. You go back to the Reformation. You go back to um, all white people, all Christians and none of those people that came in after 1972. There's a correlation there, and it's a correlation of racism and propaganda. I don't buy it for one minute, and I see it for exactly what it is. Those who go back to the Blitz spirit, there's a gentleman, almost certainly a bot, on Twitter at the moment, very sweary, and we're in a delightful podcast, so I'm not going to quote him, <laughs> about how useless scientists and academics were, because they were no use on the um, trend on the beaches of D-Day oh, yeah, and yeah. there were no use in the trenches <laughs> and there is there is a very good reason why Alan Turing was trending yesterday yeah yeah, oh, yeah it's it's nonsense and you know if nothing else that gentleman I suggested he went and read two books by my husband because he knows a darn sight more <laughs> about first and second world war every cloud but yeah. <laughs> again, it's it's simplified. Oh, you know, remain in or get back control. Let's go WTO or let's revoke because it's quite dangerous to go down that route. It's clickbait. It's catchy phrases that let people pigeonhole who the enemy is and play into this nostalgic. Wasn't it better when we ruled the world and had a, loads of people enslaved? Mm. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's white nostalgic nonsense and it needs to be called for what it is uh we're reaching the end of the podcast now thank you very much uh for coming on and i just want to ask one final question uh there are going to be some new uh, 50p coins that are going to enter circulation with paddington bear on them i wondered if there was any figure whether uh fictional or historical that hasn't appeared on uh, coinage, uh, what figure would you like to see represented on our money? I thought you were going to talk about the Brexit 50p <laughs> for, then for a second. Paddington Bear, I, I've never seen the movies, but I had a fondness for the cartoons as a child. Uh, we've had Beatrix Potter. 
Um, at this moment in time, I don't think I could give you an answer. <laughs> um, I, I'm one of those people who'd like to see those gold stars on once, but you know, yeah, <laughs> I have enough haters as it is. So, but in terms in terms of characters, off the top of my head, I really, I yeah, I'm not going to pick one. <laughs> Because I'll go away and go, oh, darn, I should have said them. So I'm just going to be massively yeah. controversial and prefer my stars. <laughs> well, thank you very much for being on the podcast. It's been a delight. It's been a pleasure. Uh, if you would like to uh, subscribe to the podcast, you can do on iTunes. If you want to contact us for any reason, you can contact us, thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. Uh, thank you very much for listening to this episode. I hope you listen to the next one. Until then, goodbye.